and we're going to begin our Advent series. There are four Sundays in Advent traditionally, and uh, the first week of Advent, uh, uh, Advent celebrates hope, hope and, and then love and joy and peace. And today we're going to talk about hope. Uh, last week we shared stories with one another. If you weren't here, I, I want to recommend or suggest that you go online and listen to the stories. Rufus worked really hard this past week and put both services stories online so you can hear from first and from second because there's different stories. Really moving time, really powerful time to hear um, what God is doing in people's lives and how he's transforming our lives today. A really, really powerful time together. So, um, if you, have a, if you have a minute, check out podcasts online. So today is about hope, and I wanted to start by telling a little story. And the story goes like this. There were identical twins once upon a time. And one of the boys um, was extreme, was like pessimistic to the extreme, anything. He was like super pessimistic. And the other twin boy was optimistic to the extreme. So anything about everything, he, he, the glass was always half full, right? And the parents were like really frustrated with the extremes that, the, that their boys lived in. It was like driving them bonkers. And so they take the boys to the doctor and the doctor suggests that for Christmas that year, which was coming up, conveniently, in this story, as it is in our world, um, the doctor suggests that the parents buy the boy who's always pessimistic a brand new shiny bike for Christmas. Like the best that they can get him. The best that money can buy a brand new racing bike. And for the, bo- for the boy who's always optimistic, they, uh, su- the doctor suggests that they uh, give him as a present a huge box full of manure. And so, I- <laughs> you're wondering, like, where is this going? So it's Christmas morning, <laughs> and the boy who's always living in the pessimistic side runs down the stairs and he sees the brand new shiny bike beside the tree and it's got a big red ribbon on it and he takes one look at the bike and he says I'm going to break my knee on that I'm going to fall off like you know not even grateful right And then the optimistic boy comes downstairs, and he sees the big box (laughs) beneath the tree, and he he, um, runs up to the box, and he tears open the box, and he unties the ribbon, and he opens it up, and he's ripping through the manure, and he's getting all over him, and he's just going through it, and he looks at his mom and dad, and he says, you you can't fool me. I know with all this manure around here, there's got to be a pony somewhere. (laughs) 
And the moral of the story is this, that to kindle hope in our hearts during this Advent season, the hope that Jesus is, the hope that Jesus offers, is ground is um, is grounded in reality. It's not to one extreme or the other. The gospel, Jesus didn't embody the gospel to create pessimists. The gospel is called good news. However, it's grounded in the biblical narrative, which is different than the story that we've been told all of our lives. And so we're going to talk about hope being kindled in our hearts, and I think, I think it'll be encouraging for us, and I think um, God would want to speak to us this morning, that, he, that Jesus will come and walk the rose and, and touch on some certain things for all of us and, and teach us this morning. So the story we've been fed is different from the biblical story. What do we mean by that? Let's set this in context. We're going to read Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, and then we're going to skip to Luke 21. And, you know, we might just read some more stuff in the New Testament. That'd be fun. So why don't you turn with me to Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Jeremiah is about... midway through or so, and Jeremiah is a prophet, and Jeremiah is a doomsday, what you would call a doomsday prophet. Jeremiah comes from a wealthy background, comes from people with means, people with resources, and then he starts telling people that it's all fallen down, and people don't really listen to Jeremiah um, or Isaiah that we read earlier. They don't really listen to him either. They're not really ready to hear sermons. <laughs> so in Jeremiah 33, it's, this is awkward. That Jeremiah is about to give this word is pretty awkward for people who are used to hearing from Jeremiah, whether they like it or not. This is different. This is a shift in tone. And we read this. And Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, the branch, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Okay. Check it. Luke 21. This is Jesus. Jesus is talking here in Luke 21, verse 5. And here's what we read. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, 
when will these things take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. See that you are not deceived. He's saying, watch out. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. Don't follow them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. Do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you're going to speak or how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up. You're given over to, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they're going to put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your perseverance, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. The two different stories that are playing out here are these. In America, we love a good story. And the particular brand of story that we like goes like this. Good guys versus bad guys. And through trial, the good guys win. And because the good guys win, we live happily ever after. And this story is okay, and that's mostly how we come to approach the Bible and how we approach God. But this is not the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative about how the future turns out is called apocalyptic literature. And you just heard it right there from Jesus' lips. You also heard it from Jeremiah and from Isaiah at the beginning of the service. It's called apocalyptic literature. And that story, I want you to uh, contrast how they're different. goes like this. Most likely, the bad guys are in charge. And the bad guys got in charge because they were really clever or they did violence to other guys. But at the end, God wins. God always wins. It's not the good guys or the bad guys, but God wins. Now the first story, and oftentimes, and that's what makes hope absurd. (laughs) Hope is absurd. The first story is really easy for us to live in. The second story, not so much, because it requires trust and reliance on God and vulnerability. Trust Him with other people. 
the way that Jesus says that this thing is going to play out, and I'm sorry, I'm not giving you like, <laughs> this is, I talked with Sarah last night, and I'm like, this, today we're going to talk about absurd hope, hope that's absurd, a community of hurt, and Stephen getting martyred. That's what you want to hear the first Sunday of the Christmas season, isn't it? Sorry to disappoint you. But that's what I got for you today. That's what he wants me to say. So I'm going to say it. Okay, hope is absurd because the truth is that it flies in the face of everything that has ever been fed to you as truth. That's why hope is absurd. It's crazy for you to believe that God wins in the end. When all of these little kingdoms set themselves up, But Jesus is saying, here it is, Jesus is saying that not one stone on top of the other will be left. It's all going to be thrown down. Vineyard Cleveland is not going to last. Hate to break it to you. Vineyard Cleveland won't last. The city of Cleveland won't last. Hold on. Rome was a country. Now Rome's just a city. So you need to decide. You and I need to decide. Who are we a citizen of? Where where does our citizenship belong? In the smaller kingdoms where the good guys win and the bad guys lose, and in the end, everybody lives happily ever after? Or are we in the second story? Now, I want to qualify this and say the, the reason why hope is absurd, hope in Jesus, is absurd is because it's absolute, right? God wins. That's pretty absolute. And it's unqualified. That's why hope is absurd. And I would say to you that both of these stories are always true in the short term. Hopefully. I want to see you live happily ever after. Like, Like, I want that for you. I think you want that for me. Like, It's a good story. And hopefully you're playing this role like in your life. Like you're the good guy or good gal, gal. You're you're good and like God's using you in certain situations. So they're both, both of those narratives are true in the short term. But it's the biblical narrative is in the end, God wins which is the narrative that plays out. We'll get, we'll get to more of that in a second. You see, because that's where logic... The second story, in the second story, logic and reason break down. Our minds are like, I can't handle that. I want to live in the first story. Reason and logic break down. And faith fills the gap in between in that second story. Because of how absurd hope is. Nothing lasts. Nothing will last. You're, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that your church will not last. Your legacy, no one will remember me in a hundred years. No one's going to remember you in a hundred years. It's freeing, isn't it, to hear that? No one will remember you in a hundred years. Huh? No, the city of Cleveland, it's not going to last. Nothing lasts. 
I told you, it's like doom and gloom today. It's really bad. <laughs> Sorry. But how encouraging is that? As you, as you, so what Jesus is saying is that you, as a follower of Jesus, you, you, you prepare, um, you shouldn't expect the best out of bad kings. But you, you prepare for the, you do prepare for the best. You should, that's why his hope is so grounded in reality. Jesus is saying you should expect the worst. But prepare for the best. We, saw, we see this narrative of the good guys versus ga- bad guys play out, uh, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on, horribly this past year. Haven't we? The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and we, and we live happily ever after. Whether you're make, making America great again, or you're stronger together, whoever you're with, we've seen that story play out. But what Jesus is saying is that none of this is going to last. And that in in the incarnation, in fact, before the incarnation, when God said, let there be light, he was preparing for this larger story to take place. And you get to play a part in that. That requires a lot of trust. And we get to play a part in that. That's why we're called to be a community of hope. At Vineyard Cleveland, we're called to be a community of hope. What does that mean? It means that we're called to be a community of hurt as well. Here's what I mean by that. You know, contrary to the dominant and prevailing view in our American culture, Advent does not begin with an unbridled celebration of shopping at the local mall. Advent deals with a community of hurt, with you and me, people who have real pain, and real depression, and real inadequacy, and real failure, particularly at this time in our country. That's what Advent is about. We're people who can articulate our hurt and aren't afraid to show, to show that. How much the world needs to see an authentic expression of a community of hope. And this can only happen as a community of hurt plays itself out. You see, like being honest about yourself and with others. Because a community of hurt knows the one to whom it speaks in prayer of its suffering. We call upon God. We trust Him to bring an end to suffering. That's what we sing about when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here. It's not the good guys win and the bad guys lose. It's the bad guys are in charge. Jesus is talking to the bad guys. Do you see in the story? He's speaking to an authority that set itself up against the true kingdom, which he embodied.
So Luke's narrative here with Jesus speaking affirms that apocalyptic type of literature. When we hear apocalyptic, we think like Armageddon movie with Aerosmith. I can stay awake just to hear you breathe. <laughs> but we shouldn't think that. We should think like end, end of days, like um, great and terrible day of the Lord. We're talking about the end of the world and Jesus is being born. Oh. So, so there's a common thread that runs through all of these narratives that we're reading. And the crucial point that Jesus makes is that he's saying, watch out. Watch out. Watch out. Don't be deceived. If someone says, I'm he, or I'm the one, watch out. Don't be deceived. Don't follow that guy. Don't follow that girl. Like, watch out. They're not Je- there's only one Jesus. He's saying there's only one kingdom. Skip that. Oh, yeah, this is really good. So, when we place ourselves solely in that first story, there's the tendency to view God as like not in reality. There's this quote in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember it? If you've read it when they don't know who Aslan the lion is, the children, and they're going to meet him, and they're shocked that he's not a man, that he's a lion, and they get afraid. Their first is like, Their initial response is like, why are we meeting a lion? And the beaver says to them, "Uh, yeah, he's he's good, but I never said anything about being tame. Aslan is not a tame lion, so you can't, like, you can't box God into this place where he's like a sugar daddy who presides over a predictable world in order to keep it user-friendly and benign. We'd really like to believe that if we only work at it, if we only work at it in really clever ways or do violence, some of you experience that. Thanksgiving, violence can be done in words, can't it? Violence can be done over Thanksgiving tables with really familiar faces, just as easily as it can be done at heads of states tables negotiating wars. You know what your heart feels like when violence is being done against it, right? And in some ways, you're the perpetrator. You and I are the perpetrator. And we'd like to think that we're really clever and we can do violence. Whether it's in, with our hands or in our hearts. And that one day, perhaps, we could have the world. And our family, and our job, and our church on our terms. That's what we'd really like. Walter Brueggemann, he's the foremost Old Testament theologian of our day. He wrote this amazing book. I'd write it down and read it if I were you. It's called The Prophetic Imagination. It's written by Walter Brueggemann. It's sick prophetic about what, who Jesus is in the Old Testament. It's amazing. Not just for Bible geeks like me. 
He says, Walter Brueggemann says, that if we're to view God like this, if we're to view Jesus like this, as this sugar daddy who is tame and keeps the world user-friendly and benign, and if we work hard and we're really clever like this, and in some instances do violence with our words or in our hearts or with our hands and think that we can have the world or have our church or have our family on our terms. Walter Bruggemann says that's conventional because that's what's been fed to you your whole life, living in the first story. Good guys win, bad guys lose. But it's not biblical It's definitely not Christian. See, a lot of times we're more American than we are Christians. It's conventional to think that way. Everybody thinks that way. Everybody thinks that the good guys win and the bad guys lose and we we live happily ever after. And it's really easy to have hope when you live in that story. It's really easy to have hope when you're standing on the mountain. It's really easy. Evangelicals, we, we, lo- we love to say Christ is, is victorious. We love to sing about it. We'll sing about it for, you know, hours. God is our victory, blah, blah, blah. We'll sing about it. For hours on end. Why? Because that paycheck is waiting for you. Because your kids are doing well. Because you're moving up at your job. It's really easy to have hope in those times. But it's a whole other level to have hope that's grounded in reality. When rent is due at the end of the month and you don't know where the money's going to come from, it's a whole other thing to have hope in Jesus and to believe that He is hope and that He's with us in the lack of rent, in the lack of job, in the family tensions and anxieties. That's a whole nother level to have hope in the valley than it is to have hope on the mountain. Anybody can sing when they can see the notes on the paper in front of their faces in the light of day. But it, may, it takes a whole nother level to sing in the dark of night from your heart a song that Lord is teaching to you. Doesn't it? And some of you know this. Some of you who walk with a limp know this and know what it's like to have hope in the valley. Not just on the mountain. And here's the good news. It's when Stephen got stoned. I'm talking about killed, not high. In Acts, Stephen is getting stoned. He, and we read this in Acts 7, 54 through 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin, bad guys in charge. Again, here we are in that same story. 
Acts 7, 54 through 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, what did they hear? Stephen just gave testimony to who Jesus was. He said, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the risen one. Look what happens. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the tops of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out to the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Have you read this before and ever asked a question of the text? Why is Jesus standing? Why is he standing? Now, most preachers and teachers will stand up here before you and use a device and will say, uh, well, Jesus is standing because he's welcoming Stephen in to heaven. Oh, isn't that a neat and tidy story? And that's what most teachers will say. Oh, here's Jesus welcoming Stephen into heaven. It's not what Jesus is doing. And that's not, um, that's the wrong, um, that's a good, it's clever, but it's not biblical. <laughs> Je- okay, so Luke is a doctor, and Luke is writing this. Luke is very meticulous about how he writes. Luke writes Acts, and Luke mentions twice that Jesus is standing. That's important. Why? Why is Jesus standing as Stephen is getting stoned? Is because we're told that after Jesus died on the cross, was buried and was resurrected, was brought up on the third day, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus sat down. In his sitting down, Jesus says, It is finished. <sighs> right? He's done working. He's going to work, y'all. And he sits down. Why is it that Jesus is standing? If Jesus is sitting has a message, Jesus is standing has a message as well. Why is Jesus standing as Stephen is getting killed? He's teaching. What is, what is he teaching here? He's teaching about hope and about what true hope really looks like. As followers of Jesus, our hope should see as, see, as Stephen saw. In all circumstances, to see as Stephen saw. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What does this mean? Jesus is sitting. As he's resurrected from the grave, goes, sits down at the right hand of the Father. It's literal. This is literal. Stephen's stoned. Jesus stands up. Does he stand up to welcome, oh, come home, son, to heaven? No. What Jesus is saying, this is, ah, okay. Jesus is saying, and showing Stephen 
as he's being pelted with rocks. Do you see these puny little kingdoms that are killing you right now? Let me show you. Let me peel back the veil and show you the real kingdom. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. When Jesus came into this world, and as Stephen is being stoned, the message is still the same. Caesar is not Lord. The United States is not heaven. Jesus is Lord. Standing at the right hand of the Father in prosperity? No, in suffering. With a martyr standing. I see you, Stephen. Standing. This is the real kingdom. This is real. Let me, let me, let me open heaven. I imagine it like being rolled back. Jesus standing and actually with his hands rolling back perception or what we think of as perception and showing Stephen the actual reality of what's happening in our world. That's the second story. God wins. That's it. That's the cookies on the lower shelf. That's it. That's the second story. It's not that the good guys win, the bad guys lose, and we live happily ever after. It's that Stephen gets killed and God wins. God wins. Total. End of story. God wins. And I know that some of you are going through a lot of pain right now. Some of you are in pain right now. Some of you are suffering and need, need to experience God, Jesus, standing with you. Standing. A standing Savior. Walking with you through pain, through anxieties, through fear. And I, I believe Jesus is inviting, I believe Jesus is inviting you into that, this Advent, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't just see Advent as like this cute little, you know, packaged baby Jesus, but that we would see him as Paul writes in Colossians, look it, he is the image Stephen, see, look, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible things. Wherever thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why he can pull it back, because Jesus is holding it together. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God stuffed down in there. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How good. How good that our hope isn't some flighty, happily ever after story. But it's grounded in the reality that God wins. That's freeing. So I just want to encourage you this Advent season to see as Stephen saw. Because I know because I've talked with many of you, and I know that your story is not the good guys win and the bad guys lose, and we're living happily ever after. I know that. I've sat across the table from you and listened to your stories, and I know that's not the reality that you're living in right now. You're actually experiencing quite a bit of pain. And I don't even think that you're asking, when, when we talk, you know, over coffee or whatever, I don't think you're even asking for happily ever after. I don't, I don't think that's what your heart's desiring. I see the desire in your eyes when we talk and you share your stories with me. And I believe that you're, what, what your heart desires is to be firmly grounded in hope that the best is yet to come and that God wins. God wins in your life. And Jesus stands just like as Stephen, as Stephen saw when he was being killed, you want to see heavens opened, Jesus standing. Not just on the mountaintop, but in pain and in suffering, in the loss of a child, in the loss of a job, in grieving, in the places where it's not convenient for the first narrative to play out. Why don't you join me in standing?